Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. I do not believe that based on what I have heard and my understanding of the responsibilities of the medical staff of the president, that there's nothing in my mind that would negatively implicate national security by providing a more truthful accounting to the American people about uh, Donald Trump's condition. It's more Donald Trump is trying to project a uh, image of, of strength, power, resilience, and uh, I think just secrecy as far as his personal affairs, whether they be business and financial or whether they be health records. John Brennan is the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency. John spent a career in government in both intelligence and senior policy positions, including serving as President Obama's senior homeland security and counterterrorism advisor. John just published his memoir titled Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. And he joins me today to talk about his book. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. John, welcome to the show. It is an honor to have you with us. Michael, it's great to be invited to your show. And I just want to say thank you for doing Intelligence Matters over the past several years, because I think it's critically important that more Americans really understand the importance of the intelligence profession and just how vital our national security interests um, are in this day and age. So thank you again for what you do. You're welcome. John, first off, congratulations on your book, Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies, Home and Abroad. I've read it. It's extraordinarily well done. 
lots of great stories, but more important, lots of important lessons. So I encourage all of my listeners to get themselves a copy and to read it closely. I also just want to highlight for all my listeners that you and I are friends. So full transparency is important in everything, including journalism. So I just want everybody to know that. And former colleagues uh, for over 30 years. (laughs) Absolutely. So John, my original plan was to spend our entire time on the book, in particular aspects of it that may not get as much attention in your other interviews, but the news cycle demands that I ask you about three issues that have played out in the media in the last few days, and then we'll dig into the book. So the first, which you actually talk about in your book, has to do with the intelligence community's judgment in late 2016 about Russia's interference in the election. And what's played out in the media is that the analysts had done their work, they made a analytic call, and you get a visit by two of your senior officers. Can you walk us through what happens there? And and I actually think this is important because I actually worry that John Durham, the Justice Department official who's investigating the origins of the Mueller investigation, may actually get this wrong in his report. So I really want to take some time to go through this. So what happens? Well, thanks, Michael. And as you know, the CIA is the intelligence community's premier all-source analytic organization. And so the CIA was tapped to take the lead on drafting this intelligence community assessment, a very sensitive one, on Russian interference in the 2016 election. And so it was the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, that were responsible for pulling that together. And so CIA probably had a dozen or so analysts, many of them very senior, who were responsible for putting this draft together. And they work with their counterparts at NSA and FBI and ODNI. And then when the draft was done, uh, there were several key judgments. Uh, One among them was that the Russians were trying to advance the electoral prospects of Donald Trump. Um, And initially, when that draft was done, all of the four agencies uh, deemed that that judgment had high confidence of the analysts uh, in those four agencies. Ultimately, the NSA decided that they were going to lower their level of confidence to medium, which, as you know, is not that much of a distinction from high confidence, right, but right. It's, a, it's a distinction nevertheless. But there was certainly no argument about the uh, solid uh, nature of that judgment itself. Within CIA, CIA analysts, the authors of the assessment, who were steeped in the intelligence, determined that they had high confidence in that judgment. Now, as you point out, there were two senior officials, U.S. uh, CIA officials, who worked in that Russia mission center, who uh, weighed in with me to say that they believe that the confidence level of that one judgment shouldn't be at the high level, it should be at the medium level. Well, one of them sent an email to me and asked if they could talk with me. And so I invited them to my office and sat down with both of them. And for about 30 minutes or so, we talked it through. And uh, they explained their reasoning. I explained to them that I was very much uh, deferring to the judgment of the analysts who were responsible for authoring the assessment, but that I also shared the analysts' views because and judgment because I had read through all of the intelligence, including the raw intelligence. And I encouraged the two senior officers to talk to the analysts uh, about that judgment. They said they already had but the authors, the analysts, were unconvinced by their argument. 
Well, I said that I encourage them to do it again if they feel strongly mm-hmm. about it. But what I wasn't going to do was to overrule the considered and consensus judgment of those CI analysts who were involved in this issue and had authored that assessment. And uh, I know that there are some press reports out there saying that I overruled those two senior officers. No, I didn't. I decided that I was not going to overrule the analysts who wrote that. And so, you know, managers, you know, have the opportunity and they should weigh in. But at the end of the day, uh, as you and I have both been managers of the analytic process, it really comes down to what those analysts determine, what their findings are, what they base those judgments on. And uh, so that that judgment at the high confidence level uh, prevailed as far as the CIA position. So I think what a lot of people in the public might not get is that the analysts make the call, right? I think a lot of people would assume that, of course, the director should say what the analytic line is, and they don't understand the culture of the place and how it works, right? And that is really important here is to understand that you were actually doing exactly what you were supposed to do and not stepping in and changing the analytic judgment, which would have been considered by the analysts a serious problem had you done that. Absolutely. I would have been roundly and rightly criticized for overturning that judgment just because two CIA officers came in and weighed in with me. So whether or not you're talking about a individual agency product or a intelligence community assessment or a national uh, intelligence estimate. The analytic views are subject to great uh, debate, scrutiny, and rigorous review. Uh, but at the end of the day, if a manager of one of those organizations decides to change the judgment, I think that is something that, again, is uh, is contrary to what the analytic process should be and needs to be. Yeah. So, so, John, the second issue kind of newsy issue I wanted to raise with you is the letter that the director of national intelligence sent last week to the Senate Judiciary Committee about Hillary Clinton and Russian interference in 2016. The intelligence, the DNI declassified and released for my listeners simply said that Russian intelligence analysis said that Hillary Clinton approved a plan in July, 2016 to tie Donald Trump to Putin and Russian interference in the election. What was your reaction to the DNI's declassification of that information? I thought it was a outrageous, uh, appalling, and blatant act of politicization that he was he released very selectively some intelligence that uh, was provided then to the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is right now engaged in, I think, a very partisan effort to try to debunk the uh, necessary investigative efforts of the FBI that looked into Russian interference in the 2016 election. And I think it also just reflects that Donald Trump, uh, after being frustrated with uh, the first two uh, directors of national intelligence, uh, Dan Coats, uh, who served in that position from the beginning of the Trump administration, then Joseph McGuire, who was serving in an acting capacity, I think they refused to bend to Donald Trump's whims, but clearly Richard Grinnell, uh, who served in an acting capacity before John Ratcliffe uh, became the director of national intelligence, uh, I think they have abused their authority in the position of the 
director of national intelligence in order to promote the very personal and partisan and craven objectives of uh, Donald Trump. So I was uh, quite appalled by that. John, can you talk about how that information was handled when it was received in 2016? Yeah, well, well, the memo that Ratcliffe released said that my handwritten notes showed that I had briefed President Obama and national security security officials, the seniors, uh, about that intelligence. And um, I briefed it uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that I wanted to give President Obama and others a sense of the extent of our access and our intelligence collection capabilities against the Russians to demonstrate that we did have this insight into what the Russians were doing, what they were saying among themselves, and so on. But I also wanted to demonstrate that you know I didn't care whether or not they were the Russians were talking about a Republican or a Democrat or you know one candidate or the other. I wanted to make sure that I was blind to that political uh, issue, and. Um, again, I'm limited in terms of what I can say about this because, right, again, right, the right. Radcliffe member only very narrowly uh, released something. But let's just say that what was within those quotes in the memo about Hillary Clinton approving this plan that was teed up by one of her advisors to highlight Donald Trump's ties to Russia as a way to distract from her email and server issue. Let's say that was accurate, and I am not saying that at all, far from it. Um, But if it were, there is nothing illegal about that. Mm -hmm. And Radcliffe's memo implies that since it was sent to the FBI as part of a larger report, that it basically uh, implies that uh, Secretary Clinton was engaged in illegal activity by doing it. Again, I'm not saying that that's what uh, Secretary Clinton had approved, but even if she had, there is nothing illegal about that, and that would not have been the basis for CIA to refer that report to the FBI for follow-up investigation for possible criminal activity. So I infer from that, and I don't know if you can answer this, but I infer from that that the reason it was passed to the FBI was because of something else that was in there. Yes, and um, as you as you know, I have not been allowed access to classified information. I was able to review some things uh, during the Durham investigation uh, that they asked me about. Uh, this was part of a of a you know number of documents that I was asked about, um, and I don't know exactly what Ratcliffe was referring to there in terms of which report, and I don't recollect what else might have been in that report. But again, I can say definitively that at least what was quoted in the Ratcliffe memo was not a basis for any type of potential criminal referral. Okay. And then the third issue, John, is um, is is the president contracting COVID. And a number of folks have said publicly that one of the reasons why the White House can't be transparent about the president's health is because of national security concerns. Can you just comment on that? Well, as we're conducting this interview, I hear that uh, Donald Trump is going to be released from Walter Reed uh, in a few hours. And uh, listening to some of his uh, medical uh, doctors uh, talking about his condition, they, I think, selectively release some things and don't release others, pointing out to HIPAA requirements in terms of privacy rights of individuals and patients. Uh, I do not believe that based on what I have heard and my understanding of the responsibilities of the medical staff of the president, 
that there's nothing in my mind that would negatively implicate national security uh, by providing a more truthful uh, accounting to the American people about uh, Donald Trump's condition. There are some things that I think you know might need to be uh, kept uh, quiet, uh, and that's when um, you could bring in members of Congress, the leadership of Congress, or whatever else. But based on what I'm hearing right now, it doesn't seem like there is any uh, national security issue that's being protected. It's more Donald Trump, uh, again, understandably, you know, knowing who he is, is trying to project a uh, image of of strength, power, resilience, and uh, uh, I think just secrecy as far as his personal affairs, whether they be business and financial or whether they be health records. Okay, John, back to, um, back to your book. Let me, let me mention some people. Let me just throw out some names and ask you what kind of impact they had on your life, your approach to your career, your success, et cetera. So um, let me start with your parents. <laughs> well, Michael, I've heard you talk about your parents and you know how uh, important they were to to you in your life and i was very very fortunate to have both a, a mother and a father who really instilled in me a sense of um the distinction between right and wrong it gave me a moral compass that i think was grounded in their religious faith um, I was raised in a very religious household, a Catholic household, but also just uh, gave me a sense of my um, the importance of honesty, integrity, but also giving back to this country. I talk in the book about how my father is a, uh, an immigrant to this country. He came here when he was 28 years old and always told my brother, sister, and myself uh, that uh, we need to give back to this great country of ours and not just take, take, take. So both of them were tremendous role models, uh, and I, I miss them dearly, and I, I think of them every day. Um, your wife, Kathy. <laughs> Kathy and I got married when we were very, both very young. We were 22 years old, and uh, we've just uh, celebrated a couple months ago our 42nd anniversary. And we've been through thick and thin together, tough times together. Uh, and it's very challenging, as you all know, for the family of CIA officers and national security officials to um, have somebody in the household that frequently is is not there. And even when they're there, their mind yeah. may be somewhere else. Yeah. And so I've had to rely on Kathy to continue to encourage me to do the things that I needed to do, but also tremendous understanding. And I, I never would have reached my my ambitions and my goals uh, had it not been for her love, support, and understanding. I just I, I can't find enough words to, to thank her for what she's done. A CI officer named Carl Rule. <laughs> you know, when I got to the agency uh, in 1980, I first started off in operations and moved to analysis. And after, you know, a couple of years under my belt as an analyst, uh, I really thought that I knew analytic tradecraft until I met someone like named Carl Rule, who was my supervisor a couple of times. And he just explained to me the difference between giving one's views and, you know, personal judgments and using information and intelligence and data to drive analysis. And I remember one of the lessons he told me was that so many analysts use words like probably and likely and almost certainly as crutches because they cannot marshal the information and the anal analytic arguments and the data to drive their analysis. Uh, so he, he was somebody who I just really revered after 
he would take the time to mentor me and to teach me and uh, somebody who was a tremendous role model for me as I pursued my uh, intelligence career. George Tennant. George was one of my PDB uh, recipients and briefees when I was Bill Clinton's daily PDB briefer, uh, President's Daily Brief down at the White House. George was the director of intelligence programs at the National Security Staff at the time. And uh, he was somebody who was just a ball of energy and knew so much about the intelligence profession, about CIA. He, he had served as the staff director of the Senate Intelligence Committee before he joined the White House staff. And when he was nominated to be the deputy director of central intelligence under John Deutsch, he asked me to join him at the agency and give up my PDB briefing responsibility and become his executive assistant as, as deputy. Well, uh, George and I have ever since forged a, a very close relationship, uh, again, friend, mentor, uh, advisor, counsel, and I served as his chief of staff when he was director. I served as deputy executive director. And George is somebody who, in terms of integrity, in terms of work ethic, in terms of dedication to this country's security, and to every man and woman who worked at CIA, he is an exceptionally talented, but also an exceptionally thoughtful, generous person. And uh, I've just been very fortunate to be associated with him for during my career. Yeah, I think he's had he's had an amazing legacy. I mean, there are still senior officers at CIA who he mentored all these years. You know, almost sixteen years later, his his legacy lives on. That's a good way to describe it. It is a legacy. It's not just in terms of what he did while he was there but it's those individuals that he really helped guide. And many of them uh, are still there at the agency. And I think they're sharing uh, what they learned from George with uh, younger officers today. And lastly, Barack Obama. <laughs> well, I was very fortunate to work for the entire eight years of the Obama presidency. And I, I didn't know Barack Obama before he was elected president. I was a remote, long-distance indirect advisor to his you know, kitchen cabinet, to his campaign. And I relate the story in the book when I first met him in Chicago the week after the election. And when he asked me first to be director of CIA and then asked me to, to join him at the, the White House when that first offer didn't work out. And for the first four plus years, uh, my office was right below his uh, in the White House in the West Wing. I got to know him very well. I uh, got to meet with him several times a day. Uh, somebody who was exceptionally, exceptionally talented, um, exceptionally conscientious about the, uh, his carrying out his responsibilities uh, as president, and was very, very interested in um, deciding, making decisions that were going to optimize our national security interests, but also, uh, given that we both have been involved in counterterrorism over the years, carrying out the counterterrorism programs in the most effective surgical manner that uh, optimizes the safety and security of Americans and, and innocent people everywhere, but also minimizes to the greatest extent any unintended um, uh, harm to anyone. And uh, I greatly admired him for uh, his emphasis on, on doing just that. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with John Brennan. 
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. John, I want to turn to a series of what may seem and actually are um, random questions, but I think our listeners will find your answers interesting. The first one is, is I want to ask you about ethics and intelligence. I often get a question from students, isn't there an inherent conflict between the two? And you're one of the most ethical people that I know. How would you answer that question from the students? Well, I don't know if I'm one of the most ethical people you know, Michael. I just, you know, I've tried to live by that North Star that my parents you know, instilled in me. And, um, you know, ethics, I think, need to be um, a part of, you know, anything anyone does in their life. Uh, it's one thing to abide by the law. It's another thing to engage in ethical and principled behavior. And clearly, the CIA over the last you know, 70 plus years uh, has been engaged in a, in a lot of things that are very, very controversial. And a number of things that I disagree with um, and, and that I had to um, really come to terms with uh, sometimes during my time at CIA and sometimes since you know, and, and before I, I joined the organization. But I, I do think particularly for a, a democracy and one that is founded on uh, the principles, uh, democratic principles uh, that are embedded in our constitution and that we are very fortunate to be able to, to have. Uh, I think that needs to be a good guide for what our intelligence and security services do. Um, I do think it's critically important that we gain insight into the threats and challenges that we face around the globe. But I think there's a way to do it uh, that w- will uh, allow us to remain consistent to those values as Americans. Uh, I talk about in the book that uh, there are a number of times when I was at the CIA where there were advocates of engaging in false, uh, propagating false information about our adversaries. Uh, And I just, I don't believe the United States should be in the business of uh, being a purveyor of, of misinformation, disinformation. Uh, I think there's a lot that we can accomplish. As much as we need to accomplish, we can do it with truthful information. And so whether or not you're talking about uh, recruiting human assets, whether or not you're talking about different types of technical collection systems, I think it has to be looked through a, a dual prism of what is legal and what is duly authorized, and then also what is ethical principled and consistent with our values as Americans. And I recognize that that sometimes is a very, very tough combination to meet when there are national security imperatives and serious threats to our country. Uh, And I think sometimes the CIA has gotten it right and sometimes we've gotten it wrong. Um, And so I think this is something that we have to learn from, you know, every, every time that we're, we're faced with one of these challenges. John, in the, in the, context of ethics, 
Let me ask you about something in the book, um, enhanced interrogation techniques, what some people call torture. You've said before, and you say in your book that you were uncomfortable with that program and that you spoke up at the time, but perhaps not as loudly as you should have. I want to ask you a different question about it because I've actually thought a lot about this and I think I know you pretty well. And I believe if you had been the director at the time, I believe that you would not have approved the techniques. We don't need to debate that, but that's what I really believe. And my question is, what would you have done when the counterterrorism folks came to you and said that they wanted to do this and gave you a reason why they wanted to do it? What would you have told them? What would you have done? What would you have said to them? Well, I think it certainly was imperative that the CIA be aggressive in the aftermath of 9-11, working with uh, our foreign counterparts, intelligence security services around the globe, who were in the process of picking up a number of these known and suspected terrorists. And they needed to be detained, uh, arrested, captured. But the CIA had no history, no experience in conducting an interrogation program, as well as you know, holding individuals captive. Right. And um, I think at the time, I would have tried to ensure this the, the great wealth of CIA intelligence and counterterrorism experience be brought to bear, but that other elements that have had that experience, such as the US military, which does detain people and capture people, and, and also does interrogate. And at the Bureau, FBI, that has been involved in interrogations, debriefings, solicitation for decades, they were the ones that, that had that experience. But to ask the CIA to carry out both a detention and an interrogation program in the, in the heat of the 9-11 aftermath and basically stand up a program without that background experience, I think was asking too much. You know, the CIA culture is always to salute uh, right. a order from the commander in chief. And that program was duly authorized by the president of the United States. It was deemed lawful by the highest legal advisory body in the executive branch, the Office of Legal Counsel and Department of Justice. It was briefed to the committee's jurisdiction. So I greatly sympathize with all those CIA officers who wanted to stop a recurrence of that horrific 9-11 attack. But that is the time where I think we should say, okay, we can do this part of it, but we need others to carry out some of these other areas of responsibility. John, let's go from, from ethics to national security as a career for young Americans. You know, I spend a lot of time on college campuses and many students, I think many students today have a view that is different from the view that you and I had growing up, right? We believed that America, yes, made some mistakes in the world, but that it was generally a force for good. And many of the students that I run into today don't believe that. They believe that the U.S. has largely been a force for bad in the world. And therefore, they have real doubts about working for the government in general and for a national security agency like CIA in particular. What would you, what would you tell those students? Well, First of all, Michael, like you, I, I try to spend as much time as I can now in my retirement uh, encouraging young Americans at various university colleges to give back to this great country of ours and encourage them to disregard all of the craziness in Washington right now and pursue a career in national security, intelligence, law enforcement, diplomacy, military, because this country 
really, really needs it. Um, are we an imperfect union? Absolutely. That's why the preamble of the Constitution says in order to form a more perfect union. Has the CIA made mistakes in its past? Absolutely, it has. And unfortunately, some of them were, you know, very, they were bad mistakes. But has the CIA and the intelligence community and the U.S. military and the Department of State done things to keep this country strong and safe? Absolutely. And one of the reasons why I think it's so important for young Americans to give back to this country is that this is a very unique country. I do believe strongly in American exceptionalism, not because we are any better or smarter uh, or more clever than anybody else. We have benefited from having such a large country with tremendous natural resources, um, arable land, navigable rivers, long sea coasts, and we're the melting pot of the world. And I think with that exceptional great good fortune, we have exceptional global responsibilities. And the, the world's you know, peace and security really rests a lot on the United States' role in that world. Look what we did during World War II as far as, you know, stopping, you know, Nazi expansionism, you know, Imperial Japan. We were responsible for rebuilding the international system in the aftermath of World War II with the Marshall Plan, the international financial system. Uh, we have been the leader uh, for the call for, for human rights and, and justice uh, and liberal democratic order. Um, if we shirk those responsibilities, we really are putting ourselves at risk. And so, therefore... The CIA, if it carries out its responsibilities ethically and in a principal fashion, plays an integral role in ensuring that the United States is going to live up to, I think, not only its potential, but also its responsibilities. So, so John, let me tell you a couple of things that I worry about and get your reaction to them. One is, one is I think, thanks to the rhetoric and to the actions of President Trump and those who have enabled him is that a significant percentage of Americans now see the intelligence community to include the CIA as the deep state, right? And, and, and that, that is not just going to go away with an election of a president Biden, right? Those people are going to continue to believe that. So how would you advise the leadership of the IC going forward to deal with that issue that a good chunk of the country sees them in a, in, in a dangerous way? Well, Michael, you and I would uh, administer the oath of office to uh, new agency employees in front of the memorial wall. Um, and it was one of the great privileges of, of our, our roles. And I can recall telling those new employees to, to disregard all of the political rhetoric um, and the partisan you know, sniping that goes on in Washington, that the CIA and the intelligence community frequently is that you know football um, and the, the meat in the in the partisan sandwich, um, and I am concerned that what we've heard and seen in the last three and a half plus years really has been demoralizing because a lot of people are concerned that here we have somebody in the Oval Office who is dismissive of intelligence and denigrates the, the role and, and uh, sacrifices of the members of the intelligence community, law enforcement, and others. I think it's really incumbent um, on the future leaders of the intelligence community to speak out. Uh, both you and I, you know, I think, uh, took opportunities to have public addresses when we were in office and uh, to better explain to the American people. And yes, sometimes we're criticized for some of the things that we do or say, but I think greater transparency 
is the best way to undercut a lot of these allegations of you know deep statehood in the in the national security environment and so i do think that uh if joe biden is elected i think there's going to be certainly a new chapter there's going to be much greater respect paid to these dedicated americans uh by the white house uh and and by the national security uh seniors uh, but I do think uh, intelligence community officials, but also members of Congress, it is so, so unfortunate that intelligence, the intelligence work is now uh, the subject of great partisan sniping on the Hill. Years ago, you know, when we both would go down and brief the intelligence committees of jurisdiction, uh, I felt that the members would would hang their political coat and party coat at the door. And they would really sit down and enjoy the discussion with us on national security matters and do it in a very bipartisan fashion. I think we need to return to those days. And uh, I think it's incumbent on the senior officials in the executive branch and senior members of Congress to do exactly that. So, John, the other the other thing I'm worried about is is that nativism has taken over our politics and patriotism, right, is required to serve one's country. And. I just wonder if those two things, nativism and patriotism, are at the end of the day inconsistent with each other. They very much are. Um, Patriotism, to me, uh, connotes a sense of real pride and devotion and commitment to uh, your country, to your state, to what it stands for uh, and and what it is. Nativism is... Um, more looking at things in a very sort of myopic way and almost an us versus them. That, um, And I know that nativism has taken root in so many countries, not just the United States, uh, because people are reacting to sometimes foreign influences and people are concerned about encroachment on their culture, on their language, on their jobs and other things. And that's why I think Donald Trump's mantra of America first, America first is really shrill uh, on the ears of a lot of people around the world because they believe that the United States is going to pursue this nativist policy that we're going to leverage our muscularity in economics, finance, you know, political and military spheres to better us and to disadvantage others. While patriotism, I think, is recognizes that you have a responsibility to your country, to your fellow citizens but it doesn't come at the exclusion of trying to ensure that the world as a whole becomes a better place because of the efforts of your country. So I very much am concerned about the growth of nativism here in this country, particularly as you know, xenophobia has really taken mm. hold in so many places. Uh, but I think this is all part of the um, you know, globalization that you know, we're becoming much more interconnected. And unfortunately, a lot of people feel threatened by these changes. And and I do think that our politicians and government officials have to be more honest uh, with their people, uh, with the citizenry, as opposed to fueling the animus that uh, unfortunately uh, is is in evidence in so many places. I guess this takes us to maybe the most important question, which is the health and even the sustainability of our democracy. Obviously, it's an important question for everybody, but I do think that career intelligence officers have a special perspective because they've watched so many countries over the years, you know, struggle with democracy and some countries even lose it. So how worried are you, John, about our democracy? I I am worried about it. 
democracy uh, is, a, is a process. It's not a, a static state in my mind. Um, Michael, you and I were, were working, I was at the White House, you were at CIA during the Arab Spring. And I remember there were a lot of folks who thought that if you just got rid of those authoritarian rulers, that you know democracy is going to flourish in the Arab world. Well, right. democracy is not like a light switch. You just can't flip it on and off. Um, and although we are the oldest democracy, and I think in many respects the strongest democracy, uh, it is still fragile because our laws and our constitution have given us a, a guide for how we can ensure uh, that democracy is going to flourish here. But it really comes down to whether or not individuals in, a, in positions of authority, from a president on down, are going to honor the spirit of those democratic principles, or are they going to try to circumvent those principles and undercut them? And so the impact of Donald Trump, and unfortunately so many others who have turned a blind eye to his trampling of our democracy, as well as enabled it. And I am just so disappointed in the re- many members of the Republican Party. Uh, I'm neither a Democrat nor Republican, and I worked for Republican administrations, had great respect for them. But to listen to a number of those Republican senators and members of the House of Representatives uh, just willfully and purposely mislead the American public about what Donald Trump is doing is just... It's very unfortunate. So I am concerned that what, we, what we've seen over the past number of years is eroding some of those foundation stones of our democracy. And just like how I think we need to adapt to the realities of the 21st century as far as governance, and governance is really much more difficult today than it was 50 years ago. Same thing with capitalism. Uh, I think what we need to do is to see how we can refine some of these democratic and capitalistic principles in order to ensure equal opportunity, equal justice for all. Uh, and unfortunately, there is too much um, inequality at this uh, this time, both on the social and political front, as well as on the economic front, that really does, I think, inhibit our further development in order to form that more perfect union. John, you've been terrific with your time. I just want to ask a couple more questions. Um, you undertook something at the agency when you were director called modernization. What was that? What were you trying to accomplish? And what do you, what impact do you think it's had so far? Well, I, I recognize that the, the world has changed significantly since the agency was first stood up nearly 75 years ago. And that that's the global ecosystem is the operating environment for the CIA. And we needed to adapt to the new realities of the 21st century. And I was always impressed as a young officer in how the U.S. military was able to better integrate its capabilities as a result of the Goldwater-Nichols Act, bringing together the services, the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, and have unified chains of command and combatant commands overseas like in Central Command or European Command and so on. And I believe that the agency could do that better. Uh, I had worked in the Counterterrorism Center, which was the first experiment in CIA back in the early 80s, uh, to bring, mid-80s, to bring together the different components of the agency to work in a more integrated fashion. So when I returned to the agency as director in 2013, I was determined to try to position the agency to deal with the challenges of the future and that evolving 21st century ecosystem. 
And although I'm a, a liberal arts guy, you know, I, I tend to be enamored with systems engineering and trying to des- you know, figure out the best design for the interoperability of systems and people and capabilities and authorities and data. And so we basically overhauled the uh, CIA structure so that you brought together all those different disciplines and skills and and areas of responsibility and authority so that you can have a combined effort when you when you are looking at Russia or China or you're looking at um, functional issues that you're not going to just have a, a series of stovepipes in the agency. Uh, you're going to have a much more matrixed and integrated model. And I think so far um, it has it has worked out. You know, some tweaks have been made, which are inevitable. Uh, people used to ask me when I was at the agency, when is this modernization process going to be over? <laughs> and, and I said, no, it's never going to be over. It's a process of continuous improvement and adaptation to that changing environment that we work in. And whether or not you're a government agency or department or you're a business or you're an academic institution, if you don't take into account all the changes in that ecosystem of which you are a part, you are going to be left behind. And so you have to continuously change and adapt to those new realities, particularly in a, in a technologically driven and a technologically revolutionary world. So, John, that's significant reform at CIA. Do you think the intelligence community more broadly needs major reforms? Well, I think there needs to be a regular review. Um, now, the U.S. intelligence community, as you well know, is rather large, cumbersome, in some respects unwieldy. And I am personally glad that the position of the Director of National Intelligence was created as a result of the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004. Because you know, when I was uh, I served as George Tennis chief of staff, George had the CIA director hat on and the uh, head of the intelligence community hat on, and those are very challenging, and they're both very full time jobs. So having Jim Clapper serve as the director of national intelligence when I was the director of CIA, it really allowed me to focus on all the different things that CIA has to do. Now we are about 16 years from that uh, that uh, seminal uh, legislative uh, reform effort in the IRTPA, and I do think it's worthwhile to take a fresh look at what that legislation got right, what needs to be refined and tweaked. Uh, but I would very much counsel against going back to the old model that brings together those roles of director of national intelligence and director of CIA. It's just too much for one person to be able to do well in this day and age. Yeah, not to mention being the president's intelligence advisor, right, which takes a tremendous amount of your time on top of both of those roles. Excellent. So, John, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was your your very vocal and visible support when you were director for the LGBTQ community at the agency. Talk a little bit w- about why diversity and inclusion was so important to you as director. Well, I think there are a couple of reasons, you know, a very fundamental one. And I think one that is incontrovertible is that I don't believe any agency can make a better case for diversity than CIA. CIA is supposed to be this government, this country's eyes and ears around the globe. And this is a pretty diverse globe. And if we're not able to tap into the diversity that is in America, so that we have better insight into the culture, the languages, the people, the politics um, abroad will bet on us. And so just from a business case perspective, we really needed to emphasize that. 
Secondly, though, and probably even more fundamentally, is that you know America, in my mind, stands for something. It stands for an inclusivity that really recognizes that we have come to this country, except for the Native Americans, and you know everybody else, you know, can trace their roots to somewhere else around this globe. And I think a lot of our ancestors were subject to a lot of bias and discrimination. And um, I, I believe it's really incumbent on the U.S. government to be the leading light on diversity and inclusion. And Michael, when you and I first joined the agency back in the early 1980s, individuals uh, of the LGBTQ community could not even get a, a security clearance. Correct. And they were ostracized uh, and they had to live these very hidden and secretive lives. And I just felt that, and I knew some of the individuals who went through that very, very painful journey themselves in the agency. And uh, it was time for the agency to ensure that we did, we were very proactive in terms of ensuring that all races, all ethnicities, all religions, all sexual orientations, people with disabilities, everybody in the agency felt as though they had equal opportunity to join the agency and to flourish within the agency and thrive. And um, like you, I, I was a very strong advocate of the LGBT community. Um, I wore my rainbow lanyard, and as I relate in the book, uh, during my tenure, there were countless officers that would come up to me and just say, thank you so much for having a very sort of a physical support uh, and noticeable support uh, to that community. It, it, it makes a difference in their lives. And again, th- if, if you really believe in the American experiment and the, uh, you know, what America is, uh, it is something that I think, you know, there's no way that you cannot support and endorse and endorse the uh, diversity inclusion initiatives that uh, thankfully have gained traction in this country. And uh, one of, that's one of the things I was concerned about when Donald Trump was elected, because there were many CIA officers, women and others who came up to me worried that there was going to be a reversal of some of those, uh, those practices and policies. The book is Undaunted. My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. The author is John Brennan. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed it. Take care. That was John Brennan. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. 
two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.